0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global head of research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren, finance professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of us. We're going to have a really interesting show today, two uh, guests who've been writing some interesting papers on portfolio allocations, model portfolios, constructing interesting models. We're really looking forward to talk to them. But Professor, uh, you've been talking about the economy uh, today, big day for the jobs market. Looking forward to getting your view on what's happening there, your your call for inflation, What what this latest report means to you.
1: Yeah, okay. So, um, well, it's not as weak as the headline number, which, of course, missed by 300,000. Uh, a couple things. Uh, almost all the decline, the shortfall, as we look into it, was state and local government. And, and in the educational area, uh, not necessarily teachers, janitors, support staff. I'm not quite sure. Whether that's a seasonal adjustment, I'm not quite sure whether, you know, um, uh, you know, some not coming back to work fearing, you know, infection of the from the students or whatever. Um, now, um, uh, uh, the the household report was also uh, much stronger uh, than the overall report. But, over, uh, you know, the big picture is this was this was not a great report because people are not Coming back to work. I mean, the unemployment rate dropped all the way to 4.8%, which uh, was uh, uh, four times the drop than was expected of just one tenth of a friend They dropped four tenths of a percent. Of a percent. Uh, the participation rate, instead of going up, actually went down. People are not coming back to work. Um, the hour of the earnings uh, was six tenths of a percent. Now, they, they did revise down uh, – it was expected to be up four. They did revise down by two-tenths of a percent the previous month. So you could say it's a wash, but the momentum was going towards wage uh, increases. Um, I mean, this tells me there's a lot of workers that are not coming back, uh, that there's going to be pressure on the wage front. Uh, going forward, and although the initial reaction of the bond market in the first few minutes is, oh, this is a weak report, the Fed is not going to, uh, may even push off uh, their tapering. Uh, further thoughts, if you take a look at the market, um, and the bond rate went all the way back up uh, to 160, says no, uh, the Fed will announce um, the, the, uh, the taper if you take a look at this. This is not really a weak enough report for them. Uh, to uh to put off the the taper uh by by any means
0: yeah so when you think about the your you know last week uh you talked about uh potential you know because of these sort of the people coming closer to realizing the fed's going to have to taper you were worried about some more corrections is, is is that a a view you still
1: hold today do you think yeah uh... i i think it's going to be a rocky fourth quarter honestly i think uh, now, now next Wednesday we get the CPI report, uh, which of course is uh, very important. Uh, they're they're expecting very mild increases. I think two tenths and three tenths. I mean, oil today, uh, gasoline is is spurting up at a seven-year oil high. Oil today, uh, WTI uh, has hit another seven-year high. The CRB index is is soaring again. Uh, I, the inflationary pressures are all. Are all there. I mean, even the, the used cars, which uh, uh, kind of gave a, a little bit of relief uh, last month, uh, the Edmonds uh, used car booklet is now soar- soaring again. I mean, uh, it seems like, except in the official statistics, everyone's seeing higher prices. So if I, d- I don't know what wins they will bring because of the way they do the sampling of the prices. But if instead of two tenths, three tenths, we get something like six tenths, seven tenths, I think this is going to kind of shock the market. I think the bond rate will go up, and I think it's going to kind of shock the market. So I think we're in for a rocky fourth quarter um, uh, that, uh, you know, might actually be a decline net. Now, still stocks are the place to be. Bonds are still terrible. (laughs) Um, uh, As as we've spoken so much, the dividend-paying stocks are eventually going to be inflation-protected. But nonetheless, as this discount rate gets revised up, there is a, going to be a, uh, repri- a repricing. So uh, I am, you know, very cautious, not saying, you know, get out equities by any means because cash is terrible, bonds are terrible. But I think everything is going to get repriced as the Fed becomes a little bit more uh, aggressive in terms of how it um, uh, sees its role monetary policy.
0: So is 2% on the 10-year a target for, uh, as you think about, towards the end of the year, towards next year? How are you, how are you thinking about that dynamic? With uh... Yeah,
1: you know, I remember I said 2% way at the beginning of the year, and then it, it started that way, and then it went all the way back down. Now that looks like a very – if we get – let's put it this way. If we get uh, faster, higher than expected – CPI data, PPI data, over the next two or three months, um, I, I, I would say that 2% on the 10-year is an extremely uh, good probability. Um, I, but I would almost say an odds-on. Now, if inflation stays mild and we get some alleviation to some of the supply constraints, everything else, then I think it'll end up below. But um, uh, the things at this particular junction – are, are are looking for a um, a uh, more aggressive um, fed posture there
0: was some wild volatility in natural gas and and uh, commodities uh over overseas uh, or so European gas prices are going a bit crazy this week anything you uh following on on that front
1: well uh, I, yeah i mean and you know, last, you know last year we had a crazy thing going on in in asia and and, and asia prices are still rising but not not as crazy as that and I think you know the you know what the, you know a lot of the oil companies are just not adding rigs they're not drilling part of it is political pressure uh, I think part of it is I'm going to show you you still need fossil fuels um and that supply problem it looks like it's still it's it's going to come if we have, if we get a colder than expected winter um uh, you know, you're going to see oil at 100 and above, and you're going to see natural gas in the fives, uh, and, and this is going to add an awful lot to also the inflationary uh, pressures that you have. So, um, this is going to, you know, cause a rethinking about how aggressive you want to go on onto this all green energy uh, situation. Uh, I think this is going to be a big uh, political issue if uh, if oil and gas can continue to rise or even stay at their current levels.
0: Well, Professor, thanks for some comments. it be interesting next week to see those inflation numbers. All right, we've got uh, two guests for the rest of the program, um, friends of the program. Corey Hofstein, co-founder, chief investment officer of Newfound Research, a quantitative asset management firm looking at how do you uniquely navigate market risk. We also have Rodrigo Gordillo, who's president and portfolio manager at Resolve Asset Management Global. He's co-author of the book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profits in Good Times and Bad. Uh, And Corey and Rodrigo both authored a new paper that I'm a big fan of, Return Stacking. We're going to talk a lot about that and some other concepts. Corey, Rodrigo, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for having us, Jeremy. Uh, We've had Corey. He's been a a return guest to Behind the Markets. Uh, But Rodrigo, I think this is your your first time with us. Tell our listeners a little bit about Resolve Asset Management uh, and, and what your firm focuses on.
2: Sure. Um, so Result Asset Management is a systematic um, uh, portfolio management firm that focuses exclusively on the asset allocation decision. And we do that through a number of um, ways. We do separately managed accounts, uh, doing global tactical asset allocation using ETFs. But our main focus is on the futures side of things. Um, we are focused on on um, on the managed futures side, especially for our public-facing funds in the U.S., a 40-act fund that we run, um, and, uh, and it is uh, multi-strat, long-short, systematic global macro. It would be, I think, in a wheelhouse. And with all of that, because it's such a uh, niche type of product that requires a lot of, um, uh, of education, and we focus a lot on educating investors through our white papers, our you know five-page reports, our podcasts that we have every Friday at 4 o'clock, a live podcast, as well as collaborations like the ones that we've done with Corey.
0: So how would you say uh, investor appetite for these types of strategies have been over sort of longer run, short run? Are you, are you seeing more interest in these alternatives and adaptive, tactive models?
2: You know, I think we, we the, the interest peaked post-08 and it's dwindled to nearly zero before uh, authoring this paper. And I think the paper is in, uh, is acquiescing to the the need for people to have their their home country biased uh, index and finding different ways to feed them the medicine of uh, alternative strategies. So I think I the, the long and short of it is, I think, it, given the way the markets have acted in the last 10 years, especially American markets, it's very small. Um, Though thoughtful advisors and investors are starting to sniff around, uh, given the valuations that we're seeing in the markets today.
3: Yeah, I would certainly agree with Rodrigo, which is that post-2008, we saw a huge boom in appetite for particularly tactical global macro strategies that had navigated 2008 so well. I think a large influx of capital into those types of strategies potentially crowded out some of the returns, as we often see in markets. And then as your traditional low-cost tax-efficient 60-40 portfolio proved to have one of the best risk-adjusted returns over the next decade, the appetite for less tax-efficient, higher-cost strategies, particularly those that were more opaque and invited more scrutiny because they would zig and zag at, at odd times, that sort of diversification went down Uh, an investor risk appetite. And so we certainly have seen ourselves that among investors, the demand for these types of strategies has fallen off, though I will say in the last couple of months, uh, there has been an increase in discussion, particularly around how these strategies might be able to help investors navigate inflation scares going forward.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think we we got you dialed in for the very tail end of the professor's comments, but you know he he is definitely expecting a little bit more volatility coming ahead, sort of rising rates, higher inflation pressures, uh, and you know people call him perma bull, but he is he's actually been calling for a little bit more of a correction at the moment, uh, sort of more than the sort of typical five percent correction that we've even we've even started to see. Um, so I guess at a high level, Rodrigo, you, you were commenting on sort of the valuations in bonds and stocks and on, on Twitter. I, I want to get your take here on the show. As you think about those macro level challenges, where we are in the bond and stock market, what, what's your general take on, on those, where we are in the, in, in the market environment here?
2: Well, I think we are at a point in both of those asset classes that we're, they're both at incredibly expensive levels. Right? And I think my comment on Twitter was well, just a, a frustration that people tend to think that bonds are the only thing that's overvalued at this point. When in fact, uh, if you look at any sort of valuation metric in the U.S. stock market, especially most developed markets, they are incredibly high. Now, by the way, I've been saying this for five years, so it's not a signal that you can necessarily trade on. But it does—it is indicative of what we're likely to experience over the next ten to fifteen years. You know, the yield on the Ten-year is as low as we've seen it since the um, 30s. And the valuations on the equity markets are just shy of – well, not just shy, but, you know, I think the last time we saw them this expensive was uh, during the tech crisis, right? So, uh, generally speaking, we are in a situation where the last 10 years for those two asset classes have been, as Corey alluded to, non-correlated and high-returning. And because of that, they are expensive, Um and be, and also because of that behaviorally everybody wants to continue to, to be in that game as long as possible so um you know i think you want to be careful you want to see what you can do in terms of diversifying away from those two asset classes over the next uh, decade
0: and and so if you think about um the, these roles for this current dynamic of this inflationary pressure some of what you're talking about managed futures makes sense on that how do you think about what asset classes you include in managed futures frameworks and how you're thinking about building inflation hedges today like what is there I mean I think gold has been like in the commodity world gold is stands by far as the most allocated to fund in commodities uh, and so now with inflation running you know gold is the most disappointing commodity it's only been energy natural gas gold has been disappointing I mean any anything you see in, in commodity complex land
3: you know the hardest thing about this inflation discussion is first just identifying what type of inflation we're even talking about right? Is this demand-driven inflation, supply-driven inflation, monetary inflation? Is it wage inflation? The types of assets that might do well in a particular type of inflation regime is going to depend on the nature of inflation. To gold in particular, there was some really fascinating research that came out last year that suggested that gold ETFs have actually gotten so large that the inflow of capital or the outflow, so supply and demand for gold, has actually made it so that gold is no longer sensitive to inflation surprises. It's actually all just driven by supply and demand and price now. And so gold may have lost its sensitivity to inflation. Um, But I think an important point there is even if it still has some sensitivity, there's difference between sensitivity to inflation and sensitivity to unexpected inflation. And, again, when we think about building portfolios to be resilient to inflation, there's so many different types of inflation, whether it's just the peer factor or or expectations around that factor. It can be really tough to construct a single solution to meet meet all needs.
2: Yeah. I think that what's important, uh, we we wrote about this uh, last year, is that there are many facets to inflation, as Corey alluded to. Where's the inflation coming? What asset classes are being affected first? How does that trickle down to the expenses of the firm? How uh, is inflation driven by demand uh, uh, pull or supply push inflation? uh, uh, Is labor going up? And, And what you can do is you can try and construct a portfolio that gets exposure to the Things that are that are going to be popping at different times so if you look at the commodity complex where we live uh if you really kind of zero in on across 50 different commodity contracts and you zero in on the unique bets on average you're looking at nine unique complexes within the commodity space and not all of them have jumped in price over the last year given these quote unquote inflation scares right you have certain energy subgroups that have certainly gone up you know we saw the issue with lumber recently now we're seeing uk nat gas pop up so the answer to solving an inflation problem in a portfolio can't just be gold, as we've seen, right? You need to have an ensemble of inflation hedges, and that includes tips, it includes gold, and it includes the nine different complexes that you can get exposure to in the commodity space. So um, I think that's the way you need to see it. You need to expand your understanding of what inflation really is and understand that you're not likely to, to get it right specifically, so you want to be in all of them in a thoughtful way.
0: Let me reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Corey Hofstein, uh, founder chief asset officer of Newfound Research. We have uh, Rodrigo Gordillo of Invest Resolve Asset Management. Corey, we've talked in the past on one of the challenges in all these hedges, diversifiers has been, where do you fund them from? You sort of, uh, Rodrigo talked about the complexity that, and, and fitting it into portfolios, you know, when the 60-40 did so well, why, you know, why, where do you fund it from? Um, and so I think that's partly some of the motivation for your, your new paper on return stacking, but maybe any context you'd give people on what got you thinking about return stacking, where you describe what, what is return stacking and, and how
3: to think about using it. So let's link it in from this inflation discussion, because this is actually very timely. I had a conversation with a financial advisor in the last 48 hours who said to me, Corey, I'm really interested in building this inflation-sensitive basket of commodities and emerging market currencies and and tips, um, and I want it to be a big chunk of my client portfolio, 20 to 25%, because I think the next 10 years aren't going to look anything like the last 10 years. And I said, well, the good news is, I'm now old enough to remember in 2009 when I had that exact same discussion with advisors. And if they had done that, they all would have been fired. right? Commodities have been a huge drag. Even something like Managed Futures, which may more nimbly be able to manage that commodities exposure, has been really tough for a lot of investors to stick with. So this idea of return stacking, which I need to give all credit to Rodrigo for, because I think the, the name return stacking is so great, is all about the idea of, can we get access to our core strategic portfolio? So our 60-40, as an example, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, our, our passive strategic portfolio in a more capital efficient way, which means instead of having to invest a dollar in to get a dollar of 60, 40 exposure, can I invest 66 cents and still get that full dollar of exposure and then have 33 cents left over to invest in diversifying assets, things that might change your economic sensitivity? And in doing so and using a little bit of leverage and using it prudently, we can stack that second layer of returns on top of our existing traditional asset allocation without having to forego those underlying returns. And so I think this is a really powerful concept, something that, look, this goes back to the the core ideas of modern portfolio theory in the 1950s and 60s. This is what was advocated for. But we're having to repurpose the discussion today around which assets should we be adding on top of this 60-40, because investors are feeling so much constraint to tracking error to that original sort of Tactical uh, original strategic portfolio.
0: Yeah, this is something you know you've been re- talking about, uh, and further famously, you know, a few years ago, and Barron's said this is where the innovation needs to happen: capital efficiency, innovation. Uh, I sort of followed some of that advice, and we we have some some ETFs in the market there. And, and I think this is a big a, a big idea. Um, and, and Rodrigo, as you guys build your sort of alternatives allocations, how how are you thinking about? this type of concept uh, for, for for what you guys are focused on?
2: Well, yeah, I think we've been thinking about this since the beginning uh, of Resolve Asset Management and the beginning of my career. Uh, this, we've been applying the idea of putting together non-correlated asset classes and using thoughtful uh, derivative leverage in order to hit a volatility target that we want. You know, you get a higher sharp ratio, you can leave out that sharp ratio, you can eat what you, what, you're, what you sow, you can actually eat that sharp ratio. And um, within the context of what we're doing, why we launched, for example, the fund um, the, the fund we subadvise for rational funds, is because th- that fund has a, a beta component to it. And the reason it's not like our hedge funds, which is pure systematic global macro, the reason you give some of that beta is because it, for a retail audience, you need to match their utility curve. And the utility curve is, t- is not aligned with the kind of managed futures, long, short, active management style. They're aligned with their home country bias or equities and bonds. So the, the concept of uh, return stacking, the concept of using um, uh, leverage on top of the base portfolio is one of trying to help adv- investors and advisors stick to something that gives them what they think they need, which is their home country bias, but also providing a little bit of medicine on top. And so we weren't the only ones doing this. Corey um, launched a fund that's doing a similar thing. Uh, just 75% on average is in equity, 75% on average is in bonds. Got a little bit of tail on each side. Then you have, you know, the fund that WisdomTree uh, launched, of course, the NTSX with, with 90% equity, 60% bonds. So all of a sudden you come into a world that prior to two years ago, you couldn't plan. Uh, you can now have your beta and unique Alpha stacked on top of it, um, so that you, as a retail investor, can um, can get exposure to diversification without sacrificing your 60/40 returns, or whatever else you want to do, whatever beta you want.
0: Corey, when you think about this return stacking concept, it, so you're, the leverage, the night, you know, the idea of 66 cents gets you the 60/40, and then you have you know 33 cents to quote play around, do whatever you want. When when you think about what makes sense in this other bucket. Um, these diversifiers, these inflation hedges is the most timely topic of the day, I think. Uh, and and sort of managed futures, commodities, whatever that as diversifier seems to make a lot of sense today. Um, what, what else, what are some other uses of this 33 cents that you've talked about in the return stacking paper?
3: So in the paper, we, we talked through a couple of different ideas. Let me start with what I think we probably shouldn't do, Right. If you have, let's say, $0.66 cents in a portfolio that's getting you 90% equity, 60% bond exposure like NTSX, and you get your 60-40, you probably shouldn't take that extra 33 and put it in equities, right? You don't want to dial up more concentrated exposure. We are using leverage here, and leverage, I think, is a very useful tool. But when you use leverage to increase concentration in into the same risks and high volatility equities, that's where you can get into a lot of trouble. Places though that I think this can be really valuable is introducing either a more absolute return alpha source, or depending upon your your tolerance for volatility, diversifiers to other risk factors. So the alpha sources, for example, might be, well, you could take that 33 cents and just put it in super short term, high quality corporate bonds. And now what you've effectively done is you've taken a 60-40 portfolio and you've layered on fairly low risk, fairly, you know, high degree of certainty and extra 2% annualized style return onto your portfolio. Now, scale that down because it's only 33% exposure, but it's not like you're adding a tremendous amount of volatility. You could also look towards more absolute return alternatives. I think things like managed futures or global macro fit really well here particularly because they can play into that inflation theme. But for investors who maybe have a little bit more uh, tracking error tolerance are willing to take losses that are different than a 60-40, that's where you could start incorporating other asset classes that's more pure passive beta like commodities or gold or something like that. And as you go more towards that direction, you actually migrate your way more towards something like risk parity which, right, uh, Rodrigo can talk all about, but that's all about balancing those different risk factors. So I think it really comes down to what the investor is trying to achieve. You can take this idea and, and add very, I think, low risk incremental returns, or you can add higher volatility diversifiers into your portfolio. It's really all about what you're trying to achieve.
0: So Rodrigo, that seems like a, a transition to you. Let's we'll talk about risk parity. What, how, how have you thought about risk parity as a concept? What are, what are the types of approaches you
2: all like to pursue there? Yeah, so I mentioned that within the fund we have our beta component. You know, there's our beta component is the idea of giving the best possible beta globally, and for us that means getting exposures to global equities, bonds, and commodities, in and in a way where the maniacs aren't taken over the asylum, right? Where you don't have a massive allocation to a risk asset uh, at, that runs at 20% volatility and trying to match it up equally in dollar weights to a bond portfolio that has a 5% volatility. What you, you wanna do is you wanna make sure that you equal, uh, have equal risk contribution, that every bucket, every portfolio is, um, is providing an equal opportunity to add diversification and without letting any single asset class uh, tail wag the dog. When you, di- when you have that beta component and you're thoughtfully allocating across those things, what you get is massive diversification. You get a higher sharp ratio, but you also get a very low volatility, low absolute return portfolio, right? And you get a massive tracking error. So these are are the reasons why you can't, a lot of people can't really stomach the idea of being in risk parity. It's because it's so different from what they're used to, which is a high volatility equity market. Now, if you're able to apply thoughtful leverage to that high sharp portfolio, and let's say match it to that of equities, uh, as I know the, the concept of the, um, the Wisdom Tree ETF is trying to do, you're trying to match, somewhat match the volatility of equities, all of a sudden for every unit of risk that you're taking, you're going to get, you, you should be expected a higher unit of return than any single asset class. Right? So that's the idea of risk parity. Kinda, it's not great if you can't apply leverage. It's pretty fantastic and pretty all weather uh, if you can apply leverage to the level of risk that you want. Right? So that is a stacked approach uh, that I think we're going to write a separate paper on because it hits a different type of audience
0: yeah I mean I, I think what some of the 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 people for a while people were talking about risk parity is this you know you're levering up bonds because they're, they're so low volatility, and you had a one one way trade on bonds where it was forty year bull market in bonds, and it looked great for forty years because its bonds have been. Been running and and so I, I you know I, I I mean I think that's even just the the concept of this stacking concept for an efficient core place where you're putting the sixty six cents. If people are comparing that to just a hundred percent equity portfolio, um, you know, where, if you have rising rates, that's some pressure on that that thing. What, what do you think? You know, how do you think about rates today? Does it change anything in risk parity for you as you think about a, a changing regime of rising rates?
2: Well, I'd like Corey to go through his recent um, retweet of an old paper with regards to rising rates in bonds, and then I can kind of ta- tackle the fear of bonds going through a massive bear market.
3: So the research piece um, that Rodrigo is referring to that I wrote and then sort of uh, rewrote a little bit is around this idea that people think that there was a 40-year bond bull market because rates were declining. And the reality is that's not actually true. If you go back in time and decompose where returns came from for something like the Barclays aggregate, the vast majority of the total return simply came from the coupons you were receiving from all the bonds within that index. And the reason the historical return was so high was because nominal yields were so high. What happens when we talk about rates going up or down with bonds is all we're really doing is pushing and pulling returns from the future. Right, so if I, have a, if I hold a 10-year U.S. Treasury today and rates go up, well, what that means is that the uh, price return of my bond has gone down. I've realized lower returns today, but it's compensated by higher yields in the future. Right? So I've pushed returns into the future. Conversely, if rates go down, bond value goes up. And I basically realize price returns early, but I have lower yields in the future. So I think the way to think about interest rates is it's really just pushing and pulling returns from the future. And so over time, if you hold a bond index long enough, that pushing and pulling averages out to just the sort of core one true source of returns and fixed income, which is the coupon that you're earning. Now, if we're talking about 30-year U.S. Treasuries, we have to start talking about a holding period of 60 years for this averaging out to work. But if you're talking about the Barclays aggregate with a duration of five, you know, over a 10-year period, the current yield is a fantastic predictor of the next 10-year of annualized returns, regardless of what rates do over that period.
0: Uh, And Rodrigo, we are talking about bonds, the sort of role of rising rates potentially for a for leverage products, uh, and we were talking about this risk parity concept. And, and Corey said, "I set you off here. What I, I stepped right into this uh, levered exposure and risk parity. What uh, give us your your take on on bonds' role, uh, levered levered bonds in a sixty uh, in, forty in a risk parity concept? Yeah,
2: in a risk parity portfolio. I think the the biggest objection to risk parity has always been that." As I mentioned earlier, you create a very well-diversified portfolio that includes bonds, equities, and commodities for the inflation hedge, right? Some people use tips now, but just generally speaking, you want to be able to hedge the risks of inflation and the risk of positive and negative growth. And when we talk about bonds, we talk about sovereign bonds, right? So sovereign bonds, a 10-year, I don't know, it's yielding one and a half. You know, why would anybody want to invest in something that yields one and a half that is also going to be struggling through a, a rising rate environment? And as Corey alluded to, that yield, that coupon is what we actually should expect from that asset class if you invest 100 cents on the dollar over the next 10 to 14 years, right? So maybe uh, there will be periods of it going up and down and having its bear markets and bull markets, but if we're doing a strategic asset allocation over a 10 to 15-year period, that's roughly what we can expect for 100 cents on the dollar. But let's remember that when you put together that portfolio of equities, bonds, Commodities in a thoughtful way and are constantly rebalancing to make sure that you have equal risk contribution. You get a high sharp portfolio that using derivatives, you can lever up, right? So what do you want uh, what do you want to compare it against equities? Well, then if that's your risk profile, if you're an individual that's willing to risk fifteen percent annualized volatility a year, then just lever that portfolio up until you hit around fifteen percent. Let's say that that's three hundred percent levered uh, portfolio. And you're getting, Three or four hundred percent lever portfolio, per and you're getting, and the vast majority of that is going to bonds because bonds have the lowest volatility. When you're levering that up, what are you getting? Well, you're not getting the one and a half percent anymore, right? Let's say bonds is a, is a three x exposure. Well, you're getting that one and a half percent three times, minus the cost of borrow, which is around, I think, LIBOR is. I'm looking at twelve basis points for the year, right? So you're still getting a nice juicy spread that all of a sudden goes from one and a half percent. To three and a half, four percent, for as a contribution of return to the portfolio, similar to the equity risk premium, that we get in a non-levered approach. Right. So, um, there's two f- uh, falsehoods here. Number one, that rising rates actually mean a negative bear, a bear market in, in bonds, and number two that that the, the holding bonds is not gonna give you a return. And it is true if you can't apply leverage. It is untrue if you're able to apply leverage. And the final thing that I'll say about bonds, let's say there is a bear market. We saw a massive real return bear market from 1940 to 1981 in bonds. In fact, the 10-year treasury lost around 60% from peak to trough. It was a terrible, terrible period for bonds. And a lot of people look at that as a, a cautionary tale for why not to invest in a lever bond portfolio like Risparity. And in theory, it smells right. But when you apply it in practice, when you actually do empirical work on it, the risk parity portfolio did at the same level of risk as equities and same level of risk as uh, 60-40 better than both with lower drawdowns in spite of having something that's pulling it down. It's okay. The whole concept of risk parity is that you're not trying to predict the future. You don't know the future. And so you want to have things that are killing it at times, but you're always going to have things that are killing you. And that's okay. Right. Is that, is that speaking, because
0: commodities did well during that period, so you're you know basically right. rebalancing into these inflation hedges? At the what what got rates going up was you know inflation was running high, and commodities did benefited from that. And any allocation of that would have protected you in that risk parity sure. concept. Right. Um, is and, and so as as we think about the challenges today, I mean, it seems like this is that kind of environment potentially. Is that is that uh, how you're looking at it?
2: Um, My predictive uh, capacity beyond five days based on quantitative methods that we use for long short portfolios is pretty, pretty poor. So I'll tell you what, the way I think about it is you want to have diversified global exposures and you want to have that active long short sleeve. You want to have some of the convexity that, um, you know, funds like Corey's offer in case there is a period of everything correlating to one, you have a bit of an offset. Right, so are we in this environment? Maybe. I mean, if you just add up the amount of times that we've had um, uh, disinflationary growth versus uh, stagnation, uh, I think we're due to, for something like that in our lifetime. Right. So, if you don't have that component, you're probably going to struggle through it.
0: Convexity is a big, a big term, Corey, for for, for the novice listeners um, and 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 non. Um, people who don't deal in sort of option pricing stuff, as you think about convexity-oriented strategies, what is a, in, your, in simple terms, what is a convexity-oriented strategy um, without getting too deep into the options lingo um, what what and, and, and specifics on options, but what, what how would you think about convexity for people and, and how you would think about building into portfolios?
3: We'll try to keep it really simple here. If I buy the S&P 500 or I buy an S&P 500 ETF, And the S&P 500 goes up a dollar, my ETF should go up a dollar. And if the market goes down two dollar a dollar, I should lose a dollar. And if the market goes up two, I make two. And if the market goes down two, I make two. So I'm matching it one for one. When you invest in something that exhibits convexity, what's going to happen is your relative return profile is going to change and increase. Uh, or decrease depending on the direction of the convexity uh, relative to the underlying. So what does that mean? Well, instead of matching one for one, maybe on the first dollar, I match one for one. And on the second dollar, I get two for one. And on the third dollar, I get three for one. And so my return profile is increasing when I have positive convexity to the upside as the underlying market's going up. And then conversely, you know, a lot of people are really interested in protecting their portfolios today. You can buy investments that will do the same, but on the downside. So, if the market goes down a dollar, you might make a dollar. If the market goes down two, you might make four. If the market goes down three, you might make nine. Um, and so, when you start to talk about investments that can exhibit that style of return, that's called convexity.
0: No, so like convex orient these convexity type strategies, as you're thinking about um, building you know allocations and models, I know you've been thinking about this and and there's more strategies, more ETFs coming out for these types of things. How are you you know trying to combine um, or or should you think about at a high level combining sort of return stacking that we talked about with these types of of convexity strategy, if that's something you're you're focused on?
3: If we take a step back and I try to avoid, just for a moment, all of my own personal views around where the market's going, because I don't think that's really relevant to this discussion. What we're trying to achieve with return stacking is a structural edge in our portfolio, right? We're not trying to pick managers that can identify better stocks. We're not trying to make tactical timing decisions around when to buy stocks or when to buy bonds. We're simply trying to build a better portfolio And in doing so, achieve higher risk-adjusted returns. It's really that structural element that's important. Now, we've mentioned a couple times that to do that, you need to use leverage, right? I need to be able to get the underlying 60-40 portfolio without investing all of my money in it. I need to invest two-thirds of my money in it and free up some capital to invest elsewhere. Well, when you start talking about leverage, the really big risk that pops up is what happens when everything's going down at once, right? So my stocks are going down, my bonds are going down, and then whatever else I invested in is also going down. That's the big environment where leverage can come back and bite you. And so rather than pretend, hey, whatever we're investing in, that alternative, uh, whether it's an absolute return hedge fund or some alternative style of investment or asset class, and pretend that it's always going to be uncorrelated, we recognize that there are certain types of market crises, often endogenous to market structure, where uh, liquidity issues within the market causes all asset classes to crash at once. And so to protect from those types of environments, we think if you're going to take use some leverage to introduce some new exposures, it probably also makes sense to carve out a little bit of capital and think about how you can hedge on the downside. And so for us, we incorporate some of those types of strategies, things like put options within the fund that we manage. Uh, but those types of strategies are available elsewhere that investors can consider how they can incorporate it within the total portfolio structure. you
0: yeah, very interesting. Um, Rodrigo, I think the you know we, we've talked a lot about these at the start and, and this inflationary environment. Managed futures as um, one of these natural complements to return sacking. And maybe talk through, you know, the tactical decisions, you know, if people are trying to study managed futures and these other strategies, let's talk a little bit about what how you approach the tactical element of these strategies. What is you know, when you when people when you hear tactical, you often think long short, what are some considerations in your research on these tactical decision making times?
2: A lot of people like to um give the title of um you know making these tactical decisions as market timing and that's a bad thing uh i also uh, if if people are or are not familiar with the concept of managing futures or managed future strategies also known as ctas or commodity trading advisors historically they've made their tactical decisions based on this idea of hurting behavior right this idea that Something that has recently gone up, enough people will plow in behind it that will continue to go up for a short period of time. And so a simple way to think about that strategy is, let's say, the 100-day moving average overlaid on the price action. If an asset class is above the 100-day, you go long. If an asset class is below the 100-day, you go short. That's kind of a basic trend metric that has been used in a lot of research and tends to be pretty fantastic, right? It has a profile similar to that of risk parity, but with that word convexity again, both on the upswing when things are trending really, really well, let's say in the 70s for commodities, and also when things are trending really, really poorly negatively, where you can easily short through futures and, and actually make positive returns in periods of market duress, especially prolonged bear markets, Right. I think the convexity, there's a much more convexity than that options contract uh, approach that Corey alluded to, but in long-term bear markets where trends are down, you can benefit from that. So that is the historically um, most common use tactical approach to futures. Now, in the paper, we recommend uh, or we, we lean towards managed futures, but there's other ways aside from CTA trend. There's the systematic global macro side, which is what we I specialize in and prefer. And what is that? You know, I just talked to you about a style. Much like value investing is a style to pick stocks versus growth investors have a different style of picking stocks. It's the same universe that they're playing with, but they're choosing different things at different times. And, and the returns of a growth manager and value manager are expected to be positive over, over the long term, but non-correlated to each other. Similarly, in the future space, you can choose to not do trend. You can choose to do seasonal, uh, identify seasonal patterns. You can imagine that commodities have a lot of seasonality to them, right? When the harvest comes, when we're depleting the stores, but seasonal patterns also exist in financials. Like for example, in uh, in sovereign bonds, you're going to see a little bump right when the governments are collecting their their uh, taxes. They have to park it somewhere before they spend it, right? So you'll see these seasonal patterns in financials as well so that's another way of managing uh, futures and being tactical long and short that's different and non-correlated to trend so systematic global macro has elements of trend has elements of seasonality of value of carry so carry is going long things that have high yield and short things that have low yield our our approach has always been to maximize diversification not only just in asset allocation through risk parity but in our Tactical portfolio that uh, so in the the fund we run is 100% risk parity and 100% systematic global macro that has six different strategies six so different styles of choosing when to go long when to go short, and attempting to have an absolute return profile and so the reason we are attracted to these for the stack second returns paper is because for this uh, time around we wanted to give the vast majority of investors what they want which is 60/40, without having to go more towards equities exclusively to get that expected and higher return in and stack returns on top of that 60/40 that are designed to make absolute returns nine out of 10 years you're going to be positive so you really are seeing nine out of those 10 years you know no guarantees here but let's just say roughly speaking you do that and you can stack those returns on top so i think um the tactical element is uh, in a stacked uh portfolio is exactly what we I think is what's going to help most people stick to it if you're able to even even if we do single digits you're stacking those single digits on top right
0: yeah, there's a lot there in 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 thinking about through six different strategies that can come into a a a position here i mean it it's it, it, i guess in if you, if you think about where these trend programs have failed the last ten years is was there a market environment dynamic that was unique to those 10 years was it what in your view was cory said a lot of money flowed in after 08 and and that return chasing um created some issues any other commentary about what was a, a a hard period um before let's call it the last 12 months i mean it seems like it's been better the last 12 months but any any other commentary about what where, where things went awry i
2: have some thoughts cory do you have anything that's top of mind for you
3: I mean, I think when we look in hindsight, the easy answer is that there were just fewer trends. And I know that's kind of obvious when you say it's a trend-following strategy. It's not going to do as well when there are fewer trends. But that is partially true. The other part is that because yields have been lower, a lot of the capital that CTAs hold has historically just been uh parked in treasuries as collateral assets and so as the front end of the yield curve has been suppressed over the last decade there's just a lot less money being made on the collateral that they're using so from a nominal return perspective that explains a lot of the decline relative to the prior 10 years and then you've just seen fewer trends uh and why that's occurring you know i have my thesis again i think what we saw was a lot of money flow into these programs post 2008 a lot of the programs had to consolidate towards trend signals uh, that were longer in length um, and were going to have less market impact, so they were trading less frequently. And I think there was a lot of crowding in that particular space. And whenever there's crowding, you tend to see a deterioration of performance. I don't think that's necessarily as much the case today, but I think that's something you did see over the last decade. And so You know, again, I I think it's hard with something like managed futures, which can be so opaque, to predict is the next decade going to be good. The reason we like stacking is because it has this wonderful absolute return type style where the losses managed futures tend to take tend to be pretty small and consistent, right? It loses more than it wins. I think the win rate on managed futures is just 40% on any given trade. But when it does win, they tend to be big winners. And so you get this stacking of, very small losses, and then a really big upside to make up for it, typically.
2: Yeah, I'll add, actually, to that. The Corey just described a bit of a lost decade for trend. Okay, Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that it just lost money? No, what it meant is that the promise of those double-digit returns that investors saw 2010 and before w- was not there over the last decade. And if you look at trend going back 600 years, there are many – 10-year periods where, you know, CTAs do low single digits. Um, and that has been one of the major reasons why you're seeing what you've seen a bleed out of those strategies, because when you have to make room for a single-digit returning asset class that is detracting from your double-digit returning S&P 500 and, and bonds, then it's too painful to watch, right? Single digits is not going to cut it in the, the highest sharp ratio 60-40 period that, that I've seen in, in, in the data. So, all of a sudden, though, it, if you are able to stack the single digits on top of your 60-40, I mean, people talk about how fees affect the long-term accumulation of assets. A 1% fee does this to your terminal wealth versus this. Well, imagine now that you're stacking a, 60, a CTA that over the last decade has done 5% and you put a 50% allocation to it. So you're stacking 2.5% returns on top. Now you're, now you're making up for the advisor fee and you're stacking another 1.5% return on top, all of a sudden that single-digit asset class or strategy or manager is very attractive to be able to stack on top. And I'm not, and, and we haven't even discussed the benefits of reducing risk for the overall portfolio because it tends to have many periods of offsetting um, drawdowns in um, in traditional
0: 60-40. Corey, I think we're, we're coming to our close on time. Uh, as you think about other places of research, things that you're working on, where you want people to find you, further areas of research on this capital efficient concept, anything you you want you want to highlight for people?
3: Yeah. I mean, if I'll just jump in here really quickly, Rodrigo. So um, you can find all of our work at thinknewfound.com. This paper is available. A link to it will take you to uh, the Resolve website where you can find the paper. Newfound's also working on some model portfolios. Uh, Resolve is working on some model portfolios. I'll let Rodrigo talk to those that take this return stacking concept Uh, and take it from a theoretical concept into an actually implementable portfolio for people who want to see how this can be done in practice with actual selected ETFs and mutual funds. And so I know that's uh, something we've had a lot of people request. You will find that in the short term going forward on our websites.
2: Very, Very quickly, Rodrigo. Yeah. So quickly, investresolve.com. We launched an index that actually gives you a practical implementation for investors and investment advisors to look at, see if they like. That includes a handful of uh, 40-act mutual funds and ETFs that allow uh, investors to take advantage of stacking returns. And then people can find me at uh, RodGordiop in Twitter.
0: This was fun. Corey, Rodrigo, thank you so much. Great paper. A lot of interesting insights. Have a great week, everybody. Because we talked about the Wisdom Tree Efficient Core Fund, I'd like to just read a quick disclaimer. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. While the fund is actively managed, the fund's investment process is expected to be heavily dependent on quantitative models, and the models may not perform as intended. Equity securities, such as common stocks, are subject to market, economic, and business risks that may cause their prices to fluctuate. The fund invests in derivatives to gain exposure to U.S. Treasuries. The return on a derivative instrument may not correlate with the return of its underlying reference asset. The fund use of derivatives will give rise to leverage, and derivatives can be volatile and may be less liquid than other securities. As a result, the value of an investment in the fund may change quickly and without warning, and you may lose money. Interest rate risk is the risk that fixed income securities and financial instruments related to fixed income securities will decline in value because of an increase in interest rates and changes to other factors such as perception of an issuer's credit worthiness. WisdomTree funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com.